Climate Watch is CGTN Radio's new podcast focusing on the impact of climate change. We have conversations with people on the front line about this critical issue. Listen to Climate Watch on all major podcast platforms and join us in taking action to save the planet we call home. Find out what the whole world is thinking in the agenda. This week on the agenda, mission to the moon. Who will be next to land an astronaut on the lunar surface? Even as India made history landing a spacecraft on the moon's south pole, national space agencies in China, Russia, the US, and at companies like Elon Musk's SpaceX are clamoring to leave Earth. But is the world ready for a new space age? Joining me now is Professor James Head from Brown University. He trains astronaut crews in geology and surface exploration and has also played a pivotal role selecting landing sites for the Apollo moon program. Professor, it's fabulous to have you on the agenda. First of all, let's start off talking about why the moon is so important in space exploration. Well, there are really two reasons. The first one is technological. It's relatively easy to get to. It's not like uh, taking months to get to Mars and a lot of uncertainty or Venus. And the second one is really um, having to do with science. Uh, the moon really reveals the missing chapters of Earth history. It's absolutely incredible because, you know, we the Earth is so dynamic and so active with plate tectonics and erosion that we don't really know what the first half to two-thirds of the history of the Earth really looked like. And that's all preserved in the moon and planets. So if we go study the moon, it's like a history book replacing the missing chapters of Earth history. So those are two major reasons. And why is the focus now on the lunar south pole? There's really several reasons for that, too. The, the first one is that it's Luna incognita. You know, we really don't have a very good idea about what's going on on the far side of the moon or the polar regions of the moon. We've concentrated exploration with the Soviet exploration, with the U.S. Apollo programs and related missions, the Chang'e missions, et cetera, and the, and the Chandrayaan missions before this in, uh, in the near side, in the upper part of the near side of the moon. So these are areas, you know, it's like saying, gee, uh, we, we only understand half of the moon, okay? Uh, that's not very good if you really want to get a global understanding of the early history. So that's one major reason we're going to explore Terra Incognita. The two other major reasons had to do with the fact that Chandrayaan-1, the Indian spacecraft, we had an experiment that NASA paid for. Indians put it on their spacecraft to go to the moon, which discovered water in the polar regions of the moon. This is really important scientifically. Water on the moon, where does that come from? Is it from outer space? Is it a record of early projectiles coming in, of comets, etc.? Could it be coming out of the moon and preserved there? Where is it coming from? So scientifically, it's really important because when there's water on the moon, it's so, it's so hot in the day that the water goes to the polar regions into craters that are permanently shattered and is trapped there. So, hey, that's great news if you want to stay on the moon a long time because it gives you the possibility of having resources there. You know, you need water. It takes a huge amount of energy to take water to the moon. And if you already have it there, that means you can stay a long time. The third reason really is to survive lunar night. Day and night on the moon aren't 24 hours. They're like two weeks, okay? And so uh, you're going to be in the darkness with no solar energy on the moon for two weeks, except at the poles, because there are places there where the sun is coming in and you can actually capture it for about 80 to 90 percent of the year. So you can get solar arrays there and survive lunar night in the South Pole region. So those are three major reasons why there's a concentration. 
Science aside, I wonder about territory. I mean, is there maybe a darker side to the moon's race? I think that's a very fundamental question that we have to address all the time. I, I am hopeful, based on my 50 or plus years of experience in international solar system and space exploration, that that won't be an issue. If you look at the 16th and 17th and 18th century on our planet, you know, clearly these were times when you wanted to go plant the flag to claim the territory, okay? That was all part of these scientific expeditions. They weren't just science, they were really uh, planting the flag for national claims, etc. That hasn't been so, so much in space. And if you look recently on the Earth, the Antarctica is a really good example of a way to do it peacefully. There's the Antarctic Treaty, that means no utilization of uh, you know mining or anything like that. And most of the nations are signatories to that. There is a moon treaty too. So we hope that it'll be much more like Antarctica, where, you know, I've had five field seasons in Antarctica, and it's just great. It's a completely international community, and it's uh, really the way I hope that the moon exploration will be. There's a lot of, you know, if we discover gold on the moon, then, you know, we're going to have to deal with that. But I think the odds on that are pretty unlikely. But we still do have to pay attention to that issue. But the, the structure is there with the moon treaty, et cetera, to deal with it. And I hope it becomes like Antarctica. So let's talk about who's in space and India's history-making mission to the moon, the Chandrayaan-3. Talk us through why it's such big news for, for India's space program, but also for beyond India, for, for, for the space community. Well, as a scientist, we need all the help we can get. You know, one nation can't afford to do everything. Space is a huge, huge final frontier. It's not final, it's the next frontier. And so any nation that can put together the capability to help explore the solar system, starting with the moon and moving out from there, is really a big contribution to science in general. That's a big deal. I welcome anybody who can, and we can help them, you know, the United States and other nations can help each other to develop this capability, et cetera. So that, that's a big deal. The second one is that for the country itself, it's really important. You know, it's clear from the Soviet Union and the United States 50 years ago that the demonstration of space capabilities is also a demonstration of national power. It's all about national pride and prestige. Pride is how we yeah. view ourselves. It's not arrogance. It's how we view ourselves. It's like, wow, we did it. If you only have to look at the faces and the excitement of all the people in that room to realize that a 12-year-old watching that television is going to say, I want to be with them. I want to go and get educated in science and technology in India because I'm proud of my country and I want to be a part of that. So pride and prestige yeah. is how people view us from elsewhere. So it's all, you know, it's all related to this. It's just fantastic. The United States, so the, the other original um, space power, they said their stated aim is to send humans back to the moon by 2024. That's only months away. How realistic is it? Well, I think it's probably going to be late 2024, but I think it's I think it's realistic. The the uh, one doesn't send humans into space without being 100 percent sure uh, of the safety. And of course, space is not like going down to the corner market. You can't be 100 percent sure of anything. And so you have to be as sure as possible. So we spend a lot of time focused on uh, safety and essentially backup systems, et cetera, et cetera. 
But I think uh, Artemis One was successful. The the capsule is is successful, and I think Artemis Two, which is to send uh, an Apollo Eight like astronauts in an Apollo Eight like mission to the moon and back without landing, is very realistic. I think everything I've seen says that the system is about is you know getting ready to go by that late late twenty four uh, date. I think the more uncertain date is in fact Artemis Artemis Three, which will be the first lunar landing. And uh, because, you know, we haven't yet seen all the suits and the spacecraft, uh, landing spacecraft, et cetera, we're working very hard now on the integration of uh, all our information we have and, and choosing landing sites in the south circumpolar region. So all that's going along very well, but there's a lot of things that have to be finalized and integrated. So I would say, you know, that's the more uncertainty. Look, China is planning missions to the Lunar South Pole with and um, without um, astronauts. Their, their timeline is before the end of the decade. What's your take on t China's space progress? I think China is doing absolutely fantastically both in human and robotic exploration. They, they have a large number. The population is huge. And so you have a essentially a source of just very bright and imaginative and creative engineers and scientists. I've spent time uh, interacting with them significantly in research on the moon and Mars. They've had, you know, their Chang'e program, which is uh, essentially um, their lunar robotic lunar program is just going fantastically. They've had three orbiters. Uh, it's the orbiting phase. They've had landers. Chang'e Chang 3 landed with U-2 rover. That was very successful. Chang'e 4 landed on the far side after they put in a uh, essentially a uh, orbiting spacecraft for communications on the far side, uh, send it back to the Earth. That was has not been done before. And that's enabled them to also do things like um, uh, essentially land a rover on the far side of the moon, which is still operating today. Chang'e 5, a return robotically, return lunar samples from a very important area, and that's being shared with the international community now, those, those samples. And uh, Chang'e 6 is just scheduled to land on the far side in the very important South Pole Lake Basin and return samples from there. And I attended a meeting uh, in April in Hefei, China, where we talked a lot about the International Lunar Research Station, the sites to go to, et cetera. And I also attended a meeting there for their um, essentially sample return mission from an asteroid. And they landed successfully with a rover on Mars the first time. So with some very interesting results, by the way. So they're doing extremely well. And that's just the robotic program. I think the human program uh, has, is very active and very productive as well. So it's all incredibly exciting. But, but the cost of all this, it, it's mind-boggling, isn't it? I mean, I'll just you know, give, give you one example here. The US Apollo program, which I know you're familiar with, ran over seven years. And those 12 missions between 1969 and 1972 cost about $25 billion. Transfer that into today's money, and we're talking about $250 billion. I mean, rocket science is still hard. It doesn't get any cheaper, does it? Uh, no, it, it isn't. It's an investment. I think you have to look upon it as an investment. You know, when John Young, the Apollo 16 commander, came back from his mission to the moon, a media person asked him that very question. Is it really worth it? And he said, well, you know, we didn't leave $1 up there on the moon. And the point is that, you know, all that money is spent here. And what is it spent on? It's spent on science and technology development. It's spent on employing imaginative engineers uh, and scientists, et cetera. It's moving things forward fantastically. And I think there's, you know, it's an interesting point. One of my colleagues, astronaut colleagues, Mike Collins, who was a command module pilot on Apollo 11, after he came back, he became director of the National Air and Space Museum. And he told me one time that he would stand outside. He's, he's Mr. Everyday, so people wouldn't recognize him like Neil Armstrong. 
So he would stand at the exit to the museum and just interview people. He said, so what do you think is larger, the NASA budget or the military budget? And almost uniformly, people would say, oh, uh, NASA's budget, which NASA's budget today is uh, essentially uh, 126th that of, NASA, uh, of the military budget. So we, NASA, the military spends NASA's total budget for the year in two weeks. Okay, so that's okay. You know, we have we have these important priorities, but when you put it in those kinds of perspectives, Mike Collins's uh, conclusion was, yeah, well, you know, I think NASA's getting too much publicity, not not enough, <laughs> because people think, you know, we must be spending huge billions and billions of dollars more than we actually are. So I think it's an investment. It's a good investment, and I think if you, it's sort of like saying, should I spend money? on going to the movies or the play when, in fact, people are starving in Africa? And the answer is, you have to do both, okay? And you have to prioritize, and it can't all be one thing, and you have to make make priorities. And I think space is a priority for a lot of reasons. There's also the environmental considerations too. You know, if technology is so developed here on planet Earth that, that we can see things and analyze things far better than ever before um, from down here, do we need these expensive and potentially environmentally damaging space missions? Yeah, I think the, you know the key about environmental damage has to do with has to do with the uh, liftoff, essentially rocket fumes and uh, essentially contrails, if you will, in Earth's Earth's environment, and th that's always a concern. We're always concerned about we're thinking about more efficient fuels, how we can launch more with with less fuel, reusable rockets, all these kinds of things uh, that a number of uh, Elon Musk's uh, SpaceX and others have been investigating, et cetera. All these things are very much on our minds. If you look at the data, really, the pollution from uh, spacecraft launches is pretty, pretty low. Uh, it's a very small percentage of anything else that we do. And we're conscientious about that. We have to think about that. We have a lot of discussions about that, and we and people are absolutely working on it. But I think if you look at the, the overall cost-benefit analysis and, you know, the attention to trying to decrease uh, these effects, you can't, with all the other benefits, you know, the... Uh, things that come from the space program, the science and technology, the inspiration of youth into key careers in science, technology, and math, and et cetera, all of these things far outweigh the small percentage of pollution that uh, that comes. And, and I don't think we can solve problems just from what we have here on the Earth. I think it was Plato who said, you know, essentially necessity is a mother of invention. So if you go into space, you're getting new challenges, which are creating new problems and new necessities. And these absolutely map out into uh, applications here on Earth. Do you think that the, the, this clamor to, to explore and get to the moon is a stepping stone to further exploration, to, to Mars, say? Well, that certainly is NASA's plan. Uh, the, the, this is a, um, a forward to the moon, onto Mars. Um, I, I, I don't like the term uh, stepping stone because it implies you jump on it and then you leap off to another destination. I think most of scientists, and I think NASA as a whole, are talking about our permanent presence on the moon. And then from that, you then figure out ways to live off planet and then press on to Mars. So we're actually working on a committee that'll meet this coming Monday where we're talking about the scientific goals of human exploration on Mars as part of a NASA committee, et cetera. So this will be, this is where we're going, okay, in the final analysis, but it's really hard to get to Mars. It takes a long time. There's a lot of unproven capabilities and technologies and human elements, uh, uh, how you are able to work when you land on Mars subsequent to a year or so uh, in space, et cetera. So there's a lot of unknowns, and I think the key here is 
if you ask any of the Apollo astronauts whether the moon is a stepping stone, they say, well, actually, <laughs> the moon is going to be the geology field training area for going to Mars. That means you're going to be living there. You're going to be learning how to actually work for long periods of time off planet. And it's not a stepping stone. It's a proving ground. Plus, you want to, we only know half the moon. You know, it's, it's, it, it's just, you know, there's so much more to learn that we don't want to just step on it and jump off to Mars. We, we, we need to learn from it from a host of different points of view. You know, I'm reminded again of a comment that John Young, the Apollo 16 commander, made when he came back from the moon. Another reporter said, gee, um, is it really worth spending all that money going to the moon? And John, he's from Georgia, a, a southern state. He had kind of a southern drawl. He said, you know, single planet species don't survive, which means that if we don't learn how to live off planet, the big impact comes, you can ask the dinosaurs about this, we may not survive as a species. So his point was kind of subtly that this kind of exploration, we need to learn to live off planet and think really long term for the survival of the species. Professor James Head, it's a pleasure talking to you. Thank you. Thank you very much. My pleasure. Still to come here on the agenda, China's lunar future will look in more detail at plans to put a Taikonaut on the moon. Find out what the whole world is thinking in The Agenda. Welcome back to The Agenda. China is planning to land the first Chinese astronauts or Taikonauts on the moon by the end of the decade with a view to setting up a research base there. Well, let's get some more detail on that now with Zhu Yang Song, the Director for International Cooperation at the China National Space Administration. Thanks for coming on The Agenda. Um, how has... China's progress changed, the, the, the race to space, other national space agencies, and, and something we're seeing more of, commercial organizations. Well, I think uh, the Chinese uh, National Space Administration is focusing on exploration programs in the past uh, decade or so. We had a number of missions to the moon, uh, including Chang'e missions. These series including orbiting uh, by Chang'e 1 and 2, and landing by Chang'e 3 and 4, which the number four landing on the far side of the moon. Bear in mind that we have also a, a relay satellite in the halo orbit beyond the moon. And also Chang'e 5 and 6, which are now meant to be a sample return mission. And Chang'e 5 has successfully returned 1.7 plus kilos of samples. And Chang'e 6 is uh, opening for extensive international collaborations and also aimed at uh, landing on the uh, South Pole, which is, uh, let's say, lunar volatiles and resources and, and water ice deposits. So we, we're focusing on the planetary missions. Uh, we also have uh, missions to the Mars. Uh, we have successfully la launched and landed on the Mars surface uh, in deployment of the rover. And also we have the second mission, which is uh, uh, in preparation. And we also have a longer mission, which is have a, a Mars sample return missions. And all of these will have, uh, in particular, the balloon mission will have emerging with the manned mission to the lunar surface in this decade. So we're looking forward to extensive uh, collaborations uh, in, in terms of uh, human and robotic missions to the moon. Let's talk a little bit more about that manned lunar mission you're, you're talking about. You know, China's ambitions in space to have a crew landing on, on the moon um, by the end of the decade. I mean, what are the technological benchmarks for that plan to be on track? Well, we have a preload program, which is called a lunar base, a scientific lunar base. This is going to be an international station, lunar station, for a lunar base station for 
robotic missions, and this is based on robotic explorations of the lunar surface. And with that mission, we also have a preparation for the final step of uh, human missions. And of course, these two missions are running in parallel. And the manned mission is what we call a miniature manned mission has been achieved by the Chang'e 5, which is a sample return mission. And that mimic the whole process of a manned mission in a small scale. We have a launching of uh, these capsule and also descending of the vehicle and also collecting of samples and also the returning of the samples to the lunar orbit and rendezvous and docking and transfer of the, uh, the samples to the orbiter and also kick that back to the, uh, to the Earth's um, orbit and also successfully recovered that sample. And that sample return mission is a, what we call a, a prelude process of the manned mission. India's Chandrayaan-3 made space history landing on the lunar south pole, but Russia's mission um, malfunctioned. Russia's space agency, Bosto, said this is not just about the prestige of the country and the achievement of some geopolitical goals. This is about ensuring defensive capabilities and achieving technological sovereignty. Is that how China sees the new space race? Well, I think the space race is more of a, a demonstration of technology, technological capabilities of each kind of different countries. We have noticed the uh, successful descent of the Chandrayaan-3. Of course, that's based on the failure of Chandrayaan-2. We also have a, a Russian uh, Luna 25, which is also malfunctioned at last minute. We know that these are, uh, you know, technical hiccups that happens. And also the landing on the, far, uh, on the South Pole it's also very important for future explorations and in-situ resource uh, utilizations. The Chinese mission, uh, as I mentioned, the orbiting landing and uh, sample returns, and also future space station, uh, the lunar space station uh, construction, is based on peaceful purpose. Uh, we have no military intention whatsoever in this process. And that also goes uh, to the Mars mission as well. Uh, as you know, that we have a successful uh, landing mission of the Chang'e three and four, and the Chang'e 4 has been landing on the far side of the moon, which is more challenging than the South Pole because you have to relay the communications and TTNC signals through a data relay satellites. Uh, so all of these are very challenging tasks. Um, we have uh, successfully conducted those, and the, the Chinese uh, International Lunar Base will be also focusing on the South Pole in search of uh, in-situ resource, lunar volatiles, and water ice deposits. Now, lunar material collected by China's moon mission is being shared with international scientists. Is that kind of cooperation and collaboration something we've seen before? Well, the collaboration has always been open. We started from the Chang'e uh, 1 and 2. As you know, we have successfully uh, orbited the lunar surface, lunar surface by Chang'e 1 and Chang'e 2 after completion of the mission has been diverted to an asteroid uh, study. And also, the Chang'e 3 uh, and Chang'e 4 missions, we also collaborate with international communities. And also, I've been personally in contact with NASA on the data sharing of some of the uh, lunar exploration missions. And the sample, as you have mentioned, returned from the Chang'e 4 mission and the coming, uh, the Chang'e 5 mission and also coming up Chang'e 6 mission will also be shared based on equal, equal uh, sharing and also uh, based on the scientific-oriented uh, study. What other kinds of um, collaboration partnerships do you, do you see working in space that might make sense? Maybe a China-Russia joint mission? Well, I think um, uh, at this moment uh, we see uh, two different levels of collaboration. One is on technological uh, capabilities and competence, 
for example, the launchers and the satellite technologies, the landers and the rovers, and all of these are based on a very uh, sensitive political uh, arena and political level uh, of different countries. And how close you're between your allies and your friends, then you can collaborate on this level. So, for example, this is success, uh, successfully demonstrated by the collaboration of the International Space Station, which has involved more than 20 countries uh, participating by providing different segments and uh, fuselage and robotic arms and uh, technical devices. And this has, is one level of collaboration, which is more sensitive. The other part is less sensitive, uh, for example, for scientific-oriented uh, studies. Uh, this including sample studies that you have mentioned, and also joint scientific studies, and joint uh, demonstration of uh, different uh, scientific uh, projects. All of this will be less sensitive, uh, less sensitive. and also we, have, we can also have a multilateral collaboration among different countries with this will make also less sensitive among countries who have um, different uh, considerations of uh, different countries' uh, technical levels. So I think these two levels can further extend cooperation in different areas, in particular in space explorations. And exploration and scientific missions are less sensitive uh, rather than, uh, you know, like uh, infrastructure constructions and uh, communication, navigation and defense co collaborations. Zhu Yang Song, thank you very much. Thank you for having me. Coming up on a future agenda, as the world reaches boiling point, are we doing enough to help developing nations fight climate change? But for now, from me, Juliet Mann, and from all the Agenda team here in London, goodbye.